Before we start the episode, a reminder that this podcast addresses child sexual abuse and can be difficult to hear. In the 2000s, Catholics who raised an alarm were still painted as traitors. At that time, it was a lot easier for me to think of it as something that was happening elsewhere. I only remember feeling an overall sense of embarrassment and shame on behalf of the Catholic Church. The church is a bureaucracy like any other institution, and they have ways of handling certain situations. And it was pretty clear from the way they were handling these many situations that they had a certain set of rules, internal rules, that they followed when something like this happened. And if the church in Boston was doing it this way, the chances were really, really good that all the other dioceses and archdioceses around the country were handling it the exact same way. From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and this is Deliver Us, a podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and where we go from here. This week, we're talking cover-up, how the Church kept its darkest secret for decades. Last time, we took a close look at what might have contributed to the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. We talked to a psychologist and a data scientist, and both said that abuse can't be explained by celibacy or gay priests. But this week, I want to point to something distinctly Catholic about the child sexual abuse crisis, and that's clericalism. In Catholic speak, clericalism refers to when a cleric, that could be a deacon, priest, or bishop, is assumed to be more special, or even holier than everyone else. Both priests and ordinary lay Catholics can slip into clericalism. And by the way, when I say lay or laity, I'm referring to Catholics who are not ordained clergy. Anyway, Pope Francis has repeatedly denounced the scourge of clericalism in the church and says it's largely to blame for the sexual abuse crisis. And he's not alone in thinking that. Some people argue that the priests who committed these crimes thought they could get away with it because they were above the law. And many victims say they didn't recognize their own experiences as abuse because they thought the priest could do no wrong. And then there's the more insidious clericalism, and that's institutional cover-up. We see this in the bishops who put the interests of priests and the church's reputation before the safety of children. So, If we want to ensure the health of the church today, we need to work for the opposite of cover-up, which is a clear and transparent account of the history of abuse. In this episode, you'll hear from people who uncovered abuse across the decades. A journalist who investigated a priest in the 80s, a nun who defied her bishop and went to the press in the 90s, and three members of the Spotlight team that covered the crisis extensively in the early 2000s. Then we fast forward to 2019 to see what transparency in the church looks like today. Most of us learned about the abuse crisis in 2002, thanks to the groundbreaking reporting of the Boston Globe Spotlight team. But that wasn't the first time the subject was breached in the press. 
1985, a journalist by the name of Jason Berry published a two-part article on a serial abuser priest from Louisiana, Gilbert Gothe. His reporting was featured in the Times of Acadiana and the National Catholic Reporter. I have been a professional writer since 1973. Jason is a veteran journalist and a fellow Catholic. Jason, how long have you been reporting on sex abuse in the Catholic Church? Only about half of my life. I did the first reports in Lafayette, Louisiana in 1985. I got hold of a number of documents from civil litigation involving the families whose sons had been sexually abused by a Cajun priest named Gilbert Gothay. It was clear that they had moved Gothay from assignment to assignment, parish to parish, after complaints by parents. Did you have a sense then that this was more systemic, that involved more priests than Gothay? I had a pretty good sense from the first early depositions I read that he was not alone. Jason had a sense that the problem extended far beyond a single priest from Louisiana. So in 1992, he published Lead Us Not Into Temptation, which was a book detailing the abuse and cover-up. But it would be another decade before the Boston Globe picked up where Jason Barry left off. Why do you think it took so long in the 90s in order for this conversation to continue? Well, the media covered it in a staggered way. There were several periods in which intense coverage rose to a critical mass and then for a variety of reasons receded. I think in many newsrooms uh, there was a kind of bafflement that the crisis could run so deep or the tentacles of uh, lying and corruption could spread so wide. But the Boston Globe coverage in 2002 after the early wave in the 1990s certainly pushed it along The Boston Globe did galvanize the country with its investigation. But I think it's important to remember that there were people like Jason Berry sorting through the legal depositions and paper trails in search of the truth. When you work hard to get the facts and to publish the truth as you know it, ultimately, the truth is the best defense. And these are hard truths, but we can't avoid them. Another person who wasn't afraid of hard truths was Sister Jane Kelly. In the 90s, she exposed the wrongdoing of clergy in her California diocese, and she sacrificed a lot to do it. Sister Jane has since passed away, but we do have this recording of her talking to a survivor, Peter Alexander Chernoff. Well, it started with a young priest. Actually, he wasn't a priest when he was sent to Ukiah and the parish that I'm in. And I was asked to be a supervisor. And I had real misgivings about the reasons he wanted to be ordained. But they didn't listen to me, and they went ahead and ordained him. Within a year, he was ordained a priest, which is unbelievable. Usually the stages take years. And then I had people coming to me and saying that Jorge had been sexually abusing the young Hispanic men. Could you tell us his full name and and what uh, what community was this? Jorge Hume Salas, and he came to St. Mary's Parish. I first heard about Sister Jane through my friend Tyler. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. We're 
He grew up in Ukiah, a beautiful city in Northern California with rolling hills rolling and vineyards. hills, mountains, valleys, very small population, rugged. God's country, as he called it. I, I really liked it. It was a simple, simple little place. So it's not like... But there was something like very that. troubling happening at his home parish, St. Mary of Angels. It started when Tyler was just in kindergarten, so the details were hazy. But the feeling of this place was unforgettable. You were on pins and needles. There was a palpable sense of danger, but you didn't know what the initiating incident would be, or you didn't quite understand what was going on, especially as a young person, as a child. Tyler was never a direct victim of abuse. But he did experience ripple effects in St. Mary's and the Diocese of Santa Rosa. So there were stories of clergy sexual abuse prior to 2002, where you grew up. Can you tell me what was happening? Yeah. Yeah, Bishop Zeman was having sex with the priest. And then that priest was having sex with some of the younger, with some of the teenage boys. They always would say Bishop Zeman and Father Jorge. Jorge became the catchphrase for sexual abuse. So you don't want to be a Jorge or what was Jorge doing or if we'd only known about Jorge. The one for Sister Jane, none of this would have come out. She wrote a book about her experience. And if you, she died some years ago, but she was an institution. The story broke in the Press Democrat. Is that like a local newspaper up there? Yeah. So she had been in contact with someone from the Ukiah Daily Journal. And her work with the journal and then with the Democrat was what broke it. You know, a lot of the the big shots turned their back on her. But she's the one that broke it. And they, I don't think they ever forgave her. And it wrecked her. She, They drummed her out. They maligned her. Sister Jane went from being a hero to everyone at school or church kind of like... Uh, Sister Jane, she drinks too much. Those priests and bishops, who Tyler calls big shots, they were untouchable. Meanwhile, Sister Jane, she was undermined at every turn. That's clericalism at play. A belief in the unquestionable authority of ordained clergy above the laity. And in this case, even a religious sister. She was the Catholic Church. I mean, that woman was a walking catechism. And to see how badly they hung her out to dry, and it just wrecked her faith. I read her book, and it, it really did. And, and then nothing was really done. So, there was evidence that abusive priests were out there. And people in the church were some of its first whistleblowers. But Spotlight's investigation was a watershed moment. The Boston Globe published over 600 stories in 2002, revealing that the church was engaged in widespread institutional cover-up. To learn more, I talked to the people who uncovered it in the first place, the original Spotlight team. You'll be hearing from three of those reporters today. Okay, could you just start by saying your name and your title, and and maybe your title um, at the Boston Globe when you were there? Okay. Marty Barron, executive editor of the Washington Post, formerly editor of the Boston Globe. Marty was in charge of the Globe when the Spotlight investigation began. Matt was the data cruncher. Hi, I'm Matt Carroll. I used to be at the Boston Globe as a reporter and data guy, and I worked on the Boston Globe Spotlight team. And then there's Walter, who goes by Robbie. Well, my name's easy. It's Walter Robinson. 
And uh, my titles, uh, I got several. I'm the editor-at-large at the Boston Globe, which probably means I'm larger than I used to be. I don't know what that means. Robbie led the Spotlight investigation. He's the guy who accepted the Pulitzer Prize for the team's work in 2003. And he grew up Catholic. I didn't really grow up in the suburb of Melrose, Massachusetts. I grew up in St. Mary's of the Annunciation Parish. Matt was raised Catholic, too. We grew up with priests in our house and nuns from the day I was born, almost literally. And I went to a, a local high school where we were taught by brothers. And there were brothers there. You know, you were sort of like, okay, stay away from brother so-and-so. He's just a little odd. Those experiences informed their reporting. But it wasn't their idea to investigate the church. So it started when um, Marty Barron arrived at the paper, and he comes in his first day in the job at the Globe, which has sort of become part of the Globe legend. He picks up this column by Eileen McNamara, which said that there was uh, these cases of abuse and all the records were sealed. And Marty says, I want Spotlight team to go deep into this. And so we did. And, uh, you know, the column was about Father Gagan. She had laid out this case and these arguments on both sides. And at the end, she said, the truth may never be known because the court documents are under seal. And so when I went into work the next day, at my, on my first day, at my first meeting, people described what they were working on, and I didn't hear anybody mention this particular case. And so I asked what we were doing to follow up and whether we couldn't get beyond the idea that one side said one thing and the other side said something else, couldn't we actually get at the actual truth of the matter. I think people were a little surprised to have their new editor on his first day at his first meeting suggest the possibility of going to court against the church, which was then the most powerful institution in New England. Now, they were not public records. They were the private records of the Archdiocese of Boston. That said, there was a public interest in what those records showed. And so I felt that maybe we could make a good argument for unsealing those documents. The idea of investigating the Catholic Church was a bit of a shock to us. This is Robbie again. Within a week or so, we were made aware that it wasn't just Gagan, that there were a whole bunch of other priests nobody knew about, that the church had made secret settlements and that the church had shifted many of these priests around. And one of the lawyers involved who talked to us initially said what the church was effectively doing was paying hush money to keep this a secret. And I think we thought at about that point that there were about a dozen priests involved. And, and we thought, oh my God, this would be the biggest story that we've ever encountered. And as you know, in Boston, by the end of early 2003, the number of priests who had abused, had been credibly accused of abusing children, was at about 250. Matt told me how they got to that number. Robbie came up with the idea of looking at the Catholic Church directories, which are basically paper phone books. If, I don't know if you have you ever used a phone book, maybe. I actually had never seen one until, um, until then. I think there were probably more for in-house use, but there was a lot of them. And it was basically a phone book, right? It would say Father John Smith, um, you know, St. Mary's in Reedville, and, you know, phone number and his ordination date, and if he was active or not. And if he was sick, it would say sick. Uh, but Robbie hit upon the idea of looking at the status 
of each priest and looking for priests who were sick. So we started to look for patterns like that, two or three years at a place on sick leave, then going back to another parish. Because in the normal Catholic rotation, you'd be assigned to a parish as a priest for six or seven years, then you'd rotate out to another parish. That was sort of how it worked. So if the pattern was different, that was an issue. And we found a, you know, a, a bunch of priests who fit that pattern. Not all of them turned out to be abusers. There are, of course, people who were just sick. You know, they had cancer or whatever, or they were alcoholics. That was roughly a similar pattern for that as well. Um, but when we looked at our list at the end of the day, we started matching it up against people who had been credibly accused of sexual abuse. It was an incredibly high match rate. Our list was a really good predictor of bad priests. After talking to a lot of people, what became clear was a lot of these priests were repeat offenders. They'd be okay for a year or two, they'd abuse someone, they'd be sent out for treatment, then they'd come back, they'd send them to another parish. They'd be there for a couple of years, they'd reoffend, they'd be sent out for treatment again. And one of the, um, the early cases was this woman named Marietta Desord, and she had some kids of her own, plus some kids of her sister, it was a total of seven kids in her apartment. And all seven were abused by Gagan. And her sister wrote this impassioned letter to the archdiocese. She said, you have to take care of this guy, Gagan. You gotta do something with him. And they didn't do anything, they transferred him. And um, it was appalling. And when I interviewed Marietta, this was years after the abuse, and I knocked on her door this cold, rainy November day, and she comes down, by coincidence, she happened to be sick that day because she had a cold. And when I knocked on the door, and she's looking at me kind of suspiciously, and I'm saying, hi, I'm Matt Carroll with The Globe. I want to talk to you about Father Gagan. And as soon as I mentioned his name, tears just came down her face. I mean, she just cried and cried and cried for like three and a half hours uh, while we talked. It was really sad. It's clear that a lot of these bishops just really didn't care, and were just concerned about protecting the reputation of the church, or the reputation of themselves, or the reputation of these rogue priests. This came in first when we get Father Gagan's records, and nowhere in any page among these 10,000 pages is there a single mention of the harm done to one child. Anywhere. There was nothing, no recognition, no acknowledgement. And all of the letters from Cardinal Law and his predecessor to Gagan and other priests, Dear Jack, Thank you for your holy service in the name of the Lord. As if nothing had ever gone wrong. Uh, I, I mean, that, to this day, I can't, I can't imagine how people in the leadership, how people who we thought were next to God could, could think like that, could behave like that. So that was Boston 2002. Except we now know that Boston was just the tip of the iceberg, and that abuse has been happening everywhere. But since Spotlight's investigation, the church has also implemented some serious reforms. I want to be sure those reforms are working. So I asked Robbie what he thought about the level of transparency in the Catholic Church today. One thing that's instructive to us now and it bears on this issue of what the bishops are willing to do to have a full accounting, is that where civil authorities have impaneled grand juries and subpoenaed all the records, the percentage of priests who abuse children comes up to between 9 and 10% of all priests. That's, that was true in uh, 
the Altoona-Johnstown Diocese, and it was true in Philadelphia. I have to tell you that this stopped me dead in my tracks. For one, Robbie is saying that when a state subpoenas church records, they often find more abusive priests than the church had acknowledged. The rates of clergy who have abused often look shockingly higher than the 3 to 6% cited in the John Jay study. You might remember from last week that the John Jay research relied on self-reporting from the church. And that means it has some real limitations. The other thing is that these disclosures and investigations Robbie is referring to, they're happening now, 17 years after Spotlight. We began this episode looking at the history of cover-up in the church. But Robbie leaves me wondering, is it really history? As of early 2019, at least 16 state attorneys general have launched investigations. Over 70 dioceses and religious orders across the U.S. have released their own reports, and more are sure to follow. And just as Robbie said, these reports from the state and the church don't always line up. Take Illinois, where Attorney General Lisa Madigan released a preliminary report claiming the six dioceses in the state failed to disclose 500 priests with abuse allegations. That's a big disconnect. And here's why I think this is only the start of it. Pennsylvania established a powerful precedent with the grand jury report, leading other states to follow suit. It just keeps getting bigger. We learned today Missouri's attorney general is widening an investigation into sexual abuse. Top in the story Catholic at this hour. The Michigan attorney general's office has launched an investigation into all seven Catholic dioceses. The state of, the state of New of Mexico is now investigating sexual abuse the within Jersey the Roman attorney Catholic general's Church. Office taking its own action, announcing the creation of a criminal task force investigating sexual abuse by Catholic. Plus, many dioceses and religious orders have publicly committed to coming clean about past crimes. So we're looking at lots more states' reports and church disclosures. And the same questions will apply. How did the church and state arrive at these different numbers of accused priests? Is the church continuing to cover up or downplay its history of abuse? These are hard, uncomfortable questions. But we need to continue pressing for clarity from both church and state. One reporter who has taken on that task is Peter Steinfels. I was, as I think any sensitive person would be, appalled by the history of uh, abuse by priests that was contained in the grand jury report. Peter is a former religion reporter and columnist for the New York Times and a former editor and chief of Commonweal magazine. He spoke with America Media's national correspondent, Michael O'Loughlin, about the Pennsylvania grand jury report. Altogether, when I read those charges, uh, which were highlighted in the 12-page introduction to this massive document, 12 pages that were the basis for almost every print story and media report that I had seen, I said to myself, this really needs fact-checking. One of the reasons we should read the Pennsylvania report more critically is to understand what a grand jury is and what it isn't. An investigative grand jury like this 
does not have any obligation to engage in any kind of uh, bringing counter opinions or adverse uh, testimony to the grand jurors. In other words, the church doesn't have the opportunity to present counterarguments. And then there's the issue of how the report describes the bishop's mishandling of abuse. I decided to drill down on one diocese, looking priest by priest, uh, named offender by named offender, seeing what were the dates of uh, the abuse, uh, what were the dates when it first came to the knowledge of diocesan officials or the bishops, how these cases were handled and so on. And in that regard, what I found was the idea that all these victims were brushed aside, that the officials did nothing, that they were simply concerned with protecting the church's reputation, and that they uh, hid it all, were just not supported. Again, I emphasize, I'm not saying that that never happened, but the material from the jury report itself contradicted those sweeping and dramatic conclusions. So Peter fact-checked the grand jury report against itself. And he found that the report misrepresents how the church responded to abuse. If you're willing to comb through the thousand-plus pages like Peter did, you'll find some bishops hit abuse by moving priests around. But what you'll also find are counterexamples of bishops who removed offending priests from ministry. So it's inaccurate to say that the church uniformly ignored abuse. And I think this gets at the temptation to think of the church as a singular, monolithic institution. Sure, there's a hierarchical structure that leads to Rome. But what most of us don't realize is that bishops rule their diocese with enormous autonomy. That's why you're likely to see variation in culture and practice and even bishops' behavior when you compare one diocese to another. And even in the same diocese, practices can change a lot when the bishop retires and is replaced. Which brings us to another difference in these reports. Language. Many dioceses, like New York City, will use the term credibly accused. The Archdiocese of Chicago uses substantiated instead of credible. Religious orders can use different terms, too. For instance, the Jesuits use established allegation. And not only are we using different terminology, but these words mean slightly different things. It's safe to say that they all require that accusations have some semblance of truth. But the criteria may be applied differently in each diocese. An abuse claim that one diocese considers credible might not pass with another. So maybe one of the first ways the church can work towards full transparency is to agree on clearer definitions. Until that happens, survivors and the state are going to have trouble trusting the church's self-reporting. Oh, and by the way, if you're still wondering about those 500 priests the church did not report in Illinois, so are we. And we don't have answers yet. We do know that the attorney general counted all allegations related to sexual abuse, whether or not they could be substantiated. But so far, we don't know the details of how the investigation was conducted. We know we haven't gotten to the bottom of the story yet, but until everyone is using the same standards, we won't be able to understand the depth of the crisis. 
Now, none of these discrepancies take away from the fact that before Spotlight, several bishops really did hide the truth. The question now is, have things gotten better since 2002? Or are there still skeletons in the closet? I want to return to something Marty Barron told me. I had asked him a question about how he developed such tenacity as a journalist. He mostly talked about his parents and the larger journalistic community. And then he said this. If we don't hold the most powerful institutions and the most powerful individuals to account, who are we supposed to hold to account? So when we discover uh, grave wrongdoing or evidence of grave wrongdoing, we have an obligation to pursue that. I mean, what are we going to do? Hold the weak institutions and the weak individuals accountable? Uh, It's the powerful ones that we have to hold to account. I believe we can hold the Catholic Church to account. But that's not just a matter of investigations and reports. We also have to fix the culture that enabled these cover-ups. We have to deal with clericalism. And we have to build a church that puts children and survivors ahead of its own reputation. So next week, we'll talk about how to do just that. Which solutions have been working and which still need some work. Deliver Us is produced by America Media in collaboration with Spoke Studios. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your host and an executive producer with Eric Sundrup. Our producers are Sarah Esikoff, Rebecca Seidel, and Eloise Blondio, with assistance in concept and story development from Sam Sawyer and Carrie Weber. Promotion and outreach from Amber Smith. Production help from Karen Freeman and Mary Beth Thoreau. Our sound design is by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed and produced by Chris McCormick. You can find additional music credits in our show notes. This episode was written by me and Sarah Esikoff. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can get confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. The number for the hotline is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. You can also visit www.rain.org. That's www.rain.org. If you are reporting sexual abuse from Catholic clergy or looking for support from the church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.